You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for being here. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We will, uh, the section that we'll be in is 1 through 14. We won't be able to hit all of the verses, but if you open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we'll get there in just a bit. As you're turning there, if you're new, welcome. My name is Jamin. I am one of the pastors here at Citizens. Uh, If you're watching online, listening online, thank you for joining us that way. Uh, Last week, we uh, jumped back into our wisdom series. So if you weren't here for the spring from January to the end of May, we were in a series on wisdom called Wisdom and Wonder, and we broke uh, for the summer, and then we jumped back in uh, last week. And we're doing a couple of weeks of recap, and I want to look back just really briefly at the recap from last week. So we'll recap the recap. Uh, Wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. All of us live in God's world. Not all of us live in God's way. Uh, Living in God's world my way is foolishness. And that's where I define for myself what is good and evil. I define for myself what is foolish and wise. Uh, And when we are wrong about what's right, it's called foolishness. When we live in God's world, God's way, we listen to his voice, it's called wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, how we become wise, is through a process. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom has a posture, it's low, it's humble and grateful. Wisdom has a pace, it's slow, we grow wise over time. Wisdom is a person, it's Jesus. We grow wise in relationship with him as we receive grace for our folly, and we follow his wise example and become like him. You miss wisdom by refusing wisdom's posture. Wisdom has four foolish postures that are named in the book of Proverbs, the stubborn, the simple, the sluggard, and the scoffer. And so here's what's important for us to catch. We will revisit it over and again. You don't miss wisdom because you don't hear it. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. You don't miss wisdom by being uninformed. You miss wisdom by being unchanged by what you know. And so the fools stay in the foolish posture and miss wisdom. The wise humble themselves, lower themselves under wisdom's voice, and then buckle up because wisdom has a pace. It's slow. It takes time. And then we lean into Jesus because he's wisdom's person, and he gives us grace. Uh, That was last week. That's the foundation for everywhere we will go from here, and it's really important. So even when we talk wisdom in family or wisdom in parenting or wisdom in money or wisdom in words, it'll all stand on the foundation that uh, we just walked through. We could dig into all of that a little bit more. What I want to do is I want to give our morning this morning, the rest of our time, to the open hands of wisdom's posture. Wisdom receives life as a gift. The wise woman, the wise man, they are low, their hands are open, and their open hands reflect a heart that receives the life that God has given. So I want to start by saying a prayer. It'll be familiar to many of you. It'll be new to some, but would you open your hands out in front of you like this and pray with me? Repeat after me. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. That prayer, great job, that was wonderful. That prayer uh, summarizes the wisdom that comes to us from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you remember with me, we were in Ecclesiastes for three weeks in May. Ecclesiastes is wisdom's disruptive voice. There's 12 chapters in it, and the main point of the book is tied up in the word that's repeated 38 times 
in 12 chapters. It's a Hebrew word. Do you remember what it is? Hevel, yes. Chapter or verse one, uh, or verse two of chapter one, he launches into his argument and says, hevel of hevels, says the preacher. Hevel of hevel, all is hevel. And the word literally means smoke or vapor. And the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, turns that word into a metaphor and then uses that metaphor to accuse life for 12 chapters. And he accuses life of being vapor. He accuses life of being smoke. He accuses life of being hevel. And he says it about everything in life. Nothing escapes this critique. He says it about work, and he says it about pleasure, and he says it about money. It's hevel. He says it about legacy and reputation. A generation comes and a generation goes. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of future things yet to be. He even says it about good things like family. He even says it about wisdom. He says in chapter two, even though wisdom has its advantages, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. The wise dies just like the fool, and that's evil. Sometimes wisdom ends life early, and foolishness prolongs life, and he says that's hevel. And he summarizes the accusation in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel and is striving after wind. So what exactly is he accusing life of being? What does it mean that life is vapor? What does it mean that life is smoke? Two things. <clears throat> it's short. Hevel means it's fleeting. Uh, it, it's there and then it's gone. A generation comes and a generation goes. Not only that, but it leaves little lasting impact. There's no remembrance. And then two, life is out of our control. Just like vapor, just like smoke, if you see it and you try to hold on to it, it's there. But if you try to grasp it, it just slips through your fingers. And that's out of your control. It's confusing even. It's frustrating. It's heartbreaking at times. The wise dies just like the fool. That's Hevel. Sometimes the wise die young and the fools live to old age. That's confusing. It like slips through your grasp. Life is Hevel. Now, here's the thing, friends. You might not be really familiar with that word because it's a Hebrew word, but you know that experience, Right? You, if you've lived any length of time and if you've lived an examined life to any degree, you know life to be brief and you know life to be out of your control. Um, it's short. Life flies by. My middle child turned nine two weeks ago today and we sat down on her birthday and we went through, this is what she wanted to do. We went through every single picture of her that I had on my phone. So we sat there for a while. And we started back to the day that she was born. She was born really early in the morning on August 21st, 2013. And there's a picture on that day of me holding her. I'm dressed in the scrubs that they give to the dads. And we stayed on that picture for a while. She had a lot of questions about that picture. Her first picture, uh, question was, hey, dad, um, what's on your chin? I had this patch of hair <laughs> right here on my chin because no one loved me enough to be honest with me. And... Uh, so we, we talked about that. I, and then she asked, Dad, on that day, like in that moment when you're holding me, what were you thinking? And I thought, I was so happy. I was just thinking about how incredible you are and how proud I was to finally be a girl dad. And, and then she asked another question. She said, Dad, what are you thinking right now? Like in this moment, looking at that picture. And I said, I'm thinking, where 
did these years go? Where did they go? She was nine yesterday, it feels like. That was yesterday. Or she was born yesterday, and now she's nine, right? And it'll feel one day like she was nine yesterday. But, but now she's not a baby anymore, and she's nine years old, and she can beat me in basketball. And where did the years go? And, and, and I know many in the room, you know that experience. You're looking at me, and you're smiling because you're like, just wait because 19 comes tomorrow, and then they have their own kids. Life is a vapor. It's heavy. It goes really quickly. And we have surrounded that experience of life with all these cliches. Like when it comes to kids, we say they grow up so fast. But even apart from kids, just in general, right, time flies. The days are long and the years are what? Short. Heavy. Ecclesiastes doubles down on that and says, not only does it fly by, but you are just a few generations away from no one remembering you lived. Happy Labor Day, right? <clears throat> Life is short. And, and this is the side of Hevel that I think was news to me as I studied it. It doesn't just capture brevity. It captures that life is tragically out of our control. Um, like, it's frustrating. Uh, my son asked me a couple months ago, he said, Dad, is there a Bible verse that says life is hard? I said, no, there's a whole book that says it. It's Ecclesiastes. It just thunders hevel. Like, uh, think about how out of control life is right now. This is a season for many with work and school and fall where there's this collective feeling already that we're just treading water. Anyone? And the fear in that is, okay, if one more thing gets thrown at me, then I'm just going to sink. And here's what's going to happen. One more thing's going to get thrown at you. A conflict, a cold, a crisis, a bill, disappointing news, because life is hevel. And the hevel even describes the saddest things in life. Um, lots of ink is spilled in Ecclesiastes over suffering and loss and injustice and pain. And many of you know that experience. As I'm talking, you're not thinking about the brevity of life. You're thinking about the unfairness of it. And you're not asking, where did the years go? You're asking a different question. What about the years I never got? What about the years uh, I never got that were healthy? What about the married years I never got? What about the years with children I never got? What about the years free of suffering I never got? Hevel. Life is hevel. And that's the accusation Ecclesiastes makes against life. Life, you are vapor. Life, you are smoke. Life, you are blindingly brief, tragically out of our control. And that thunders for 12 chapters, hevel, hevel, hevel. And then, if you remember, every so often, it's really special, the clouds part and wisdom speaks amidst the accusation and says something like this. We see it in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's what? gift to mankind. This idea, this idea that life even in the heaven is a gift is present in chapter two and in chapter three and in chapter five and in chapter eight and in chapter nine. God has given you this life as a gift. Receive it. Receive it. Okay, wait, wait, wait. what about the heaven? Life is short. Life is out of control. Life is hurt. Or it hurts. It's painful. Yes, that's what the book is about. And the only way to live wisely in this heavy life is to open our hands and to receive it as a gift. Every other way, my friends, lean in. Every other way, because nobody escapes the heaven. 
every other way just leads to greater frustration. We talked about this in May. Uh, if I treat life like a problem to solve, or if I treat life like a competition to win, or if I treat life like a right that I've earned, the hevel eats that up. Life is way too short. It's way too complicated. It's way too out of our control. Life is a problem to solve leads to growing fear. Uh, life is a competition to win leads to growing shame. Life is a right that I've earned leads to growing bitterness. The only way through this hevel life is the open-handed way. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. And that leads to growing gratitude for life and growing settledness in life. I shared this last week. I'll say it again. This wisdom series just means so much to me personally. I long for these truths to be true about my life. And, and, and that is particularly true about this point. This life is a gift life. I really do want to live it. And so I've tried to fill my life with this truth. We put this prayer on the wall in our house. God, life is a gift. You're the giver. Thank you. Uh, I have set reminders on my phone to remind me during the day to stop and pray. Life is a gift. I'm trying to do my part to make sure that wisdom make, doesn't just make it into my sermons, but it also makes it into my life. And here's what I'm finding, especially around treating life as a gift. It's really hard. It's not easy. My life is a gift alarms go off at 9 a.m., 1 p.m., and 9 p.m., and when it goes off, I try to stop and open my hands and, and pray. And that has landed at some really sweet times. That's landed at some difficult times. That's landed at some normal times. It's landed a few times at some comical times. Last week, I'm driving home from church. My car starts shaking. The check engine light starts flashing. And then the car just shuts off. And as soon as the car came to a stop, my phone goes off. One o'clock. Life is a gift. And I literally stared at my phone. And I just said, I said out loud, Really? Is, is it, you know? And most times when that alarm goes off, I'm reminded to pray. What happens is I'm confronted that that's not where my heart is. And here's what's true. The open-handed posture is about a heart that releases control, that trusts God, that receives life with gratitude, even in moments when cars break down and phone alarms remind you how far you are from the sermons you've preached. Even then, life is a gift. Okay, your Bible's open to Ecclesiastes 7. I am in love with Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. And here's why your Bible is open there. Uh, these verses have helped me. They have been a help to me as I have sincerely tried to live like this. They've been a help to me even this week, especially this week as I've sincerely tried to live an open-handed life and treat life as a gift. Um, it doesn't have the same approach. You're not gonna find the word gift in any of these verses. Uh, you're not gonna find the same language as the other passages that we've considered. It has a different approach, but it has the same conclusion. It has the same effect. It makes the case in a really poignant way for treating life as a gift, even in, even in the hevel. Um, when I sit with these verses, I can just kind of feel my hands open a bit. I don't have a great outline for us. I don't have great categories for these verses. We're probably only going to make it through about four of them. But what I want to do is I just want to walk through them together, consider what they have us consider, and then in a minute just offer our open hands back to God again. Here's verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Um, you get to feel really early on that there's a heaviness to some of this or at least a sobriety to it. This is the first of a few verses in this chapter that talk about our mortality. 
Uh, they talk about death. They talk about the certainty of death. Uh, it doesn't do that to frighten us, though, friends. It does that because there is wisdom that comes from considering our own mortality. There is a rich Christian tradition of wise men and women who consider their death in ways that help them live well. And that's what this is. It helps us consider what's important, what's true. Verse 1 says it this way. A good name is better than precious ointment. To say it another way, who you are is more important than what you have. To drive the point home, he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. How do those two statements relate to one another? A good name's better than precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Did he change the subject? No, they're, they're like all proverbial sayings. They're linked together. The one stanza helps you understand the other stanza and vice versa. Um, here's what we all instinctively know about the day of death. In our last moments, in our last breaths on earth, no one cares about what's in their bank account. No one cares about what's in their garage. No one cares about how much their house is worth, how successful their company was. For all, lean in, for all of the energy we spend building and accumulating, what we most want to leave behind is a good name. People can squander the stuff we leave behind, and they will. They can waste our work, and they will. But long after the money is spent and the house is sold and moth and rust destroy our possessions, what we hope, maybe the only hope we have, is that those closest to us can still say, they were good to me. They were good to me. They loved God. They lived well. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Here's why. Because at birth, all of that is uncertain, how well you lived or didn't. But at death, it's all made known. I've talked a lot in Wisdom series about my friend and mentor, Zach Eswine. He's influenced so much of this. I, I really should cite him every Sunday because of his influence. So consider this, that. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says this about this verse. Birth is like precious ointment, sweet-smelling, wonderful in itself, and holding out the promise for rejuvenation. But precious ointment doesn't reveal character. Just as an evil person can use precious ointment, so one's birth does not indicate the kind of person one is and will become. Death reveals the life that preceded it. It is the obituary, not the birth announcement, that best reveals the measure of a person. Two conversations came to mind when I read this passage and read that quote. Uh, several years ago, I officiated the funeral for a man. I didn't know him well, but I knew his daughter, and she asked me to do the funeral. And she called me the day before the funeral because she had planned to speak at her dad's funeral and was struggling. And she was struggling because he was not a kind man. He was not a godly man. And through tears, she said this, I can't think of a single good thing to say about him. A few years later, I officiated the funeral for a wonderful man, a man that I love and respected deeply. And the day of the funeral, I'm talking to his wife, and she says about him, he was the best man I've ever known. A daughter says about a father, I can't think of a single good thing to say. A wife says about a husband, he's the best man I've ever known. Do you know what they both had? A birthday. But after that, they lived very different lives. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The obituary says more about a person than the birthday does. And that is revealed, especially and acutely, 
when we consider mortality. Okay, what wisdom might open our hands to life? What wisdom might kind of pry open our palms that we would offer them to God? If this is true, and if you like me, I'm assuming this about you, if you like me want to be the kind of person that my loved ones are sad to lose but proud to remember, what wisdom is there? Here's what it is. That means I have to open my hands to Jesus. Like all of my life open to Jesus. The worst parts of me. What is the difference between I have nothing good to say and he's the best man I've ever known? You know what the difference is? Jesus is the difference. We have no shot at an honorable eulogy without Jesus. The only shot we have without Jesus is that people say nice things about us because they never got close enough to us to actually know us. But with him, with Jesus, he can uh, make us become who we have no shot of becoming without him. Like, let's allow the gospel to bear its weight on these words. Ecclesiastes 7.1, the day of death better than the day of birth. We have to see that in light of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day of our death as Christians is inseparably linked to the day of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the good name, because of his death and resurrection, the good name I want is not the name I earn, but the name that he gives me. Son, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, a shame lifted, guilt erased, white as snow, beloved child. That's who you are, Christian. That's who I am, Christian. And if the good name, if the eulogy is what matters, then I cannot live this life pretending. I can't clench my fists around trying harder. I can't put my efforts into hiding better. I have to open my hands to Jesus, receive the gift of life, and receive the gift of new life in him. And there and only there can I be honest with him about everything. And honest with him about the, the things that I'd be embarrassed to see in my eulogy and can come to Jesus unadorned and unfiltered and receive love and plead, Jesus, you have given me a good name. Help me live into it. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And I can believe and you can believe by grace that the gospel identity secured for you and secured for me through Jesus' death can actually help change us into the kind of people we want to become. It can actually change us into the kind of people who are remembered well when the measure of our life is on full display. If we were to add that as an addendum to our prayer, it maybe sounds like this, God, life is a gift. You are the giver. I need grace and help becoming who you've already declared me to be in Christ. Verse two, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. There's another verse around mortality. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Put it in my own words. You get more wisdom from a funeral than you do a vacation. The house of feasting is the vacation. It's the special occasion. It's the big elaborate go out with your friends, spend more money than you planned. It's the trip you go on once or twice a year. It's the thing you do when you want to do something special. It's the thing you look forward to. It's especially the thing you dream about when life, ordinary life, is stressful. And you think, I can't wait to get away again. That's what I really need is a break. The thing that when it's over, you immediately start thinking about the next one. When will I be in the house of feasting again? 
when will I get to go back to the beach again? When will I get to go out again and party again and enjoy the moment again? Now, these are the memories that when they pop up on your phone, like the picture pops up on your phone, you look and you're like, oh, wow, that's the last time I was happy, right? That's, it felt so good to be there. I wish I was there right now. It's the house of feasting. It is, hear me, it is good to go there. And all God's people said, amen. The house of mourning, that's the living room that's hours into receiving the news you never want to hear. The house of mourning is the hospital room where the sting of death just made first contact. It's the room where prayers feel unanswered, where the grieving sit in tears and tissues, where friends sit in silence because there are no words, where fools speak words that wound because fools can't empathize beyond their own experience. The house of mourning is the house of sorrow and grief and loss. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis said about his wife's death, her absence is like the sky spread out over everything. And those are the words that are spoken and felt and written in the house of mourning. It's sad. It's a sorrowful place to be. Verse 2 of God's word says this. It's better to go there than to the house of feasting. How can that be true? Like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you desire tragedy and pain. It doesn't mean that you seek it out. It doesn't mean that the house of mourning is something that we should be glad that it exists. One day Jesus comes back and gets rid of houses of mourning forever. We believe that. It means that there is wisdom that you get from the house of mourning that you can't get from the house of feasting. There is more wisdom in the funeral than there is in the vacation. This is the end of all mankind, verse 2 says. And the living will lay it to heart. There's something in the house of mourning that the living lay to heart. Um, there's a lot here, so much to unpack. But as someone who has the honor as a pastor, I do mean that it's an honor. Um, as someone who's gone into the house of mourning often, I've been a part of more funerals in my life than vacations. That's true. Can I tell you the wisdom that I have found that I do not find at the feast? The wisdom that opens my hands to life every single day time I leave a house of mourning. Here's what it is. The house of feasting creates a longing for the extraordinary event. The house of mourning creates contentment for ordinary moments. That's what happens. The house of feasting creates a longing for the extraordinary event. When can we go again? When will we escape again? When will we leave again? The house of mourning creates a contentment for ordinary life. It says, I just want to stay put. You get home from the party, you get home from the vacation, and you think, when's the next one? And you try to survive ordinary life, job, school, friends, family, problems, responsibility. I just need to survive all that until the next break comes. And you think, when can I get out and get back to the feast? You get home from the funeral, and you think, none of this is promised. None of it. This life, this day, these people these problems, this family, none of it's promised. This is my ordinary life. It's mine, and it won't last forever. And the house of mourning says this, instead of trying to escape it, receive it. Receive it. Live in it. 
Bleeker and I were leaving. Uh, he used to lead worship here. Um, <laughs> he still does. He'll be back next Sunday. Bleeker and I were leaving a house of mourning a few months ago. Uh, and, and we had been, oh, goodness, with this precious family who was grieving. And it's one of those moments that are unspeakably tragic. And yet, because the room was filled with people who know and love Jesus, somehow sorrow and hope existed together at the same time. It's these spaces where, I don't know how else to say it, but the space between heaven and earth just gets really thin in those rooms. And the best word to capture all that is it's sacred. It's a, it's a house of sacred sorrow is what it was. And we leave that and we get in the car to head home and, and Bleeker is driving, but he, he, he stays put and he just says to me, isn't God so kind that he lets us do this? And he just goes on and on about God's grace and the honor of getting to be with people in moments like this. And he was just really moved. I thought he was about to start singing like he does. And that led to this conversation the whole way home about this life that God has given us and all that we love about it. And we just named things. And can I tell you, the things we named were all the normal things. The family meals and the people we work with and you, the church that we love and serve and the work that we do in our yards and the kids that we tuck in and even the hard stuff and even the complicated stuff. You know what we didn't do? We didn't dream about the next big event or the next trip or the next exciting opportunity, even as good as those things are. It wasn't, God, would you get me out of my normal life? It's keep me here. Keep me here. Give me more of this. God, get me to the next ordinary thing well because it's from you, and that's enough. And that's what the house of mourning teaches. That's what the, the house of sacred sorrow teaches us. It does not minimize pain in life, far from it. But it offers something that the house of feasting can't. The house of feasting says, aren't these moments special? And the house of mourning says, all of your life is special. All of it. See it. Take it to heart. That's why it's better to go to that house. That's the wisdom you get that you really don't get anywhere else. Open your hands to the ordinary. It's not promised. It's given. And if we added it to our prayer, it would sound like this. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Help me see even and especially the ordinary moments of my life as a gift from you. Verse three and four. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the fool, the heart of the fool, is in the house of mirth. They sound really similar, don't they? Uh, two and four. And they are in some ways. Um, two says it's better to go to the house of mourning. Verse four says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Now, prov proverbial statements like these, they're complicated. And there's like a host of interpretations. What makes sense is that verse two is directed at those who are attending the house of mourning. Verse three and four is directed at those who are closest to the house of mourning, meaning they are the ones sitting with tears and tissues. Sorrow is better than laughter. The wise is in the house of mourning. Here's the point. The wise grieve when it's time to grieve. They don't try and escape life when it's sad. A few years ago, we were traveling as a family. The kids were younger and in the back, and we hit traffic and wasn't sure if it was construction or a wreck or something like that. And as we got closer, it was really clear that it was an awful wreck, like lane clearing, helicopters, ambulance, all of that kind of wreck. 
And uh, we saw the ambulance and saw a stretcher and all that. And I didn't want the kids to see something really sad and really difficult. Just didn't, didn't know what they were about to see. And so I looked on the other side of the road away from the wreck and I saw a Dave and Busters. And I told the kids, I said, hey, look, it's Dave and Busters. Isn't that place so fun? And my hope was that they would look away from the wreck towards the fun. And that's what they did. And they saw that and they started talking about their favorite games and their favorite food. And they were like, dad, can we go there soon? And I was like, I don't know, ask your mom. And I, I, but in that moment, I pointed to something light and easy so that they would avoid what's sad and difficult. And that might be an okay dad tactic in a moment like that, but wisdom according to these verses say this, the wise don't do that. The wise don't do that with the sad and difficult things in their life, with the wrecks in their life. Something hurts you, uh, it's tragedy, it's relational wreck, it's wounded by life. When that happens, don't look for the light. Don't look for the distraction. That's what fools do. The heart of the fool when they suffer. The heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. The word mirth is the same word used throughout Ecclesiastes for pleasure. It's the empty pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. It is especially empty when it is pursued as a way to avoid pain and as a way to avoid dealing with painful things. The verse is saying this, when life is hard, the fool is in the house of pleasure when he or she should be in the house of mourning. The fool tries to ignore the wreckage and move towards the fun, move towards the light, move towards pleasure, when what they should do is stand and be sad. Hear it again. We've said it over and over. We'll continue saying it. It's so important. Pain either transforms you or it gets transmitted from you. There is no way around suffering. There is only a way through suffering. And when life hurts, Fools try to go around it. Fools go to the bar when they should go to counseling. Fools go to the party when they should go to church. Fools find fools who will laugh with them when they should find friends who will weep with them. And the wise, they don't do that. The wise stand in the wreck. They grieve the broken pieces. They plead with God to somehow, some way, make it right. And then they receive his comfort while they wait. And when the wise, please see this, it's incredibly important. When the wise go to the house of mourning, when it's time to mourn, it says this, the heart is made glad. It's misleading. It doesn't mean happy. The word glad means good. Godly grief is good for your heart. It does something. Eugene Peterson in the message, he translates this verse like this. Crying is better than laughing. It blotches the face, but it refines the heart. The wisest people I know, hands down, are those who have suffered much and they have cried themselves into the arms of Jesus and have found there in that space that what he does is he both comforts and refines. And so to treat life as a gift means we open our hands even to the painful things in life. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Maybe it would sound like this. Give me the courage to suffer well, to have a sad face and a refined heart. We only made it through... Four verses. We're going to have to save the rest for another time. 
But verses 13 and 14 brings it to a close and, and highlights something that all of this hinges on. 13 says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's not to cast God in like a cruel light. It's just one way of saying, if God has determined that something's going to be something, who are we who are not God uh, to believe that we can change it? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Let me read that again. It's so important. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That last line means that we cannot control which days are coming for us. Okay, what's the spectrum of human experience in life? What are the extreme ends of life and seasons of life? On the one side, you have prosperity. On the other side, you have adversity. On the one side, you have prosperity, and that's flourishing. The job is great. The family is well. The heart is full. All your teams won their football games yesterday. God feels really close. You are healthy, and you are happy. That's prosperity. On the other side, it's adversity. Life is hard. And really, it only takes one of those things to be going poorly It only takes one heartbreak in all of that for the whole season of life to be named adversity, suffering, difficulty. We are still fighting. I am still sick. I am still poor. I still feel far from God. I am still crippled by anxiety. I am still enslaved to a sin. I am still without the good things I long for. It's adversity. It's suffering. Prosperity and adversity, what's in between? Everything else every other stage of life. So it's the whole scope of human experience. And it says this, in prosperity, don't keep it. Be joyful. Let it roll up into worship for God. Let it culminate into worship for God. What do you do in adversity? Be curious. In prosperity, be joyful. In adversity, be curious. It says, consider that God made the one as well as the other. Consider that. Be curious about that. Mourn, yes. Be desperate, yes. Cry out to God, yes, all of it, and be curious. Here's why. The same God who is over the day of pain is also over the day of joy. He is not evil, so he must be working. He must be up to something. And here's the point. The only sure and certain thing in a hevel life is God. He is not vapor. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The seasons of life change. Sometimes it's prosperity. Sometimes it's adversity. Sometimes it's something in between. God never changes. At all times, he uh, is who he is in all seasons. He is at work for our good. Eswine says about this verse, this means that something larger than our prosperity and something larger than our adversity has a hold on us. It's not up to you. It's not up to me to secure our prosperity. It's not up to you. It's not up to me to avoid adversity in ways that we can't. It is simply up to us, even in the heaven, to hold fast to a God who is glorious enough to thank in prosperity, who is good enough to trust in adversity, who is constant and beautiful and true enough to worship in every single season because something larger than prosperity and larger than adversity and larger than any other circumstance has a hold on us and has a hold on you. And if he holds us, we can open our hands to him and receive this life as a gift and trust that because he is over all of it, all of it matters. Nothing is wasted. 
God is good and unchanging, and this life he gives is a gift. Would you hold your hands out in front of you? And would you pray with me? God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. I'll pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy. I need your help, God. I need your help. Uh, My hands were pretty closed this week, Lord. And so would you, by your grace, remind me of the gospel that covers over the gap between the messenger and the message. And then, Lord, would you just let these truths sink deep in my soul and let these truths sink deep in the soul of my brothers and sisters that we would open our hands to life. And and, and there's probably a whole lot more that that could have been said. There's probably a whole lot more, God, that, that could have surrounded this so that it helped make sense of the things that could be confusing. But even in that, Lord, just open my hands to you and trust that you appropriate your word into the hearts of your people because it doesn't return void and you love them. And what you're doing collectively with all of us is you're making us look more and more like your son, Jesus. We are conforming into the image of your son so that Jesus is the firstborn among many sisters and brothers. Help us open our hands to you, Lord God. We love you. Amen.